Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. For the final show of 2020, it's welcome back to one of the most popular guests from this year, Professor Tim Bale, expert on political party membership, opposition parties and much else besides. Welcome back, Tim. Hi, Mark. Now, back in May, which feels a long time ago now, we talked about five lessons you have for what an opposition party needs to do. So I thought it'd be quite a nice way of giving a little bit of perspective to this year, but also look forward to what politics may hold in 2021, to think about each of those lessons in turn and what we think about both Labour and the Liberal Democrats uh, on those. Um, the first one was you said that basically to be successful, an opposition party needs to have fresh faces signifying a generational change. I guess on the Labour front, that's, I mean, pretty much job done, isn't it? Keir Starmer is not Jeremy Corbyn and the public have noticed that he's not Jeremy Corbyn. I'm not sure there's a lot more to say from the Labour perspective on that one. Well, I mean, obviously, Keir Starmer himself represents uh, a fresh face. Uh, not quite sure he represents such a big generational change. I think his age is kind of indeterminate mm. in a way, although, of course, he does look younger than Jeremy Corbyn. But then the vast that, majority That's of true. It'd be fascinating, pointless, but also fascinating to poll the public on what age they think Keir Starmer is. <laughs> but I suspect, as you say, because Jeremy Corbyn looked like an older person, and Keir Starmer looks the slightly indeterminate middle-aged. If anything, I would expect people might overestimate the gap in their ages. Yeah, yeah, quite quite possibly. And I mean, I think the other thing you'd have to say about Keir Starmer and the Labour Party is uh, the shadow cabinet. Mm. And in some ways, his task has been made a little bit easier by the fact that uh, some of those people who, you know, you might have expected him to keep in, uh, he hasn't had to uh, because they've made mistakes themselves. So although he hasn't undertaken this massive purge of left wingers, um, it is a noticeably different shadow cabinet from the one that Jeremy Corbyn uh, would have appointed. Uh, so he's got an advantage there. Uh, the disadvantage, of course, is that uh, along with fresh faces goes lack of recognition. And there's been some polling out quite recently, uh, for example, about uh, Annalisa Dodds, who is proving, I think, a, a fairly capable um, shadow chancellor. But she's not someone who many uh, members of the public actually recognise. Uh, she hasn't, as it were, appeared on their radar yet. And that might be, of course, because we're somewhere out from an election. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, it's quite difficult for her because she is facing someone who at the moment anyway is one mm. of the most popular members of the government in Rishi Sunak. Yeah, although I guess if the job is to be obviously different from the past in a weird way, being relatively low profile is actually fine. You know, if the public's view is, well, we don't know who this new Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer is, just built into that very comment is something has changed from the past. Um, yes. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, um, you know, all politicians of all parties would like to be well known by the public. At least most politicians of all parties would like to be well known uh, by the public. But it feels like it's one of those things that you know, news political news programs can get terribly excited about, you know, the Vox Pops where you show members of the public photos of politicians and nobody can recognise them. The relationship between that and actually winning or losing an election, though, seems pretty, pretty weak. You know, you can have a very obscure cabinet or shadow cabinet team and still do perfectly well. So I, I suspect it's the change thing that really matters rather than 
how well known the new faces are. Yeah, I think you've got a point. And of course, we'd also have to say that, uh, to be honest, it's the leader who really embodies mm. and incarnates the party as far as most voters are concerned. Um, in as much as they're paying attention to whoever's there, it is the leader. Uh, first and foremost. So the, the team he appoints, um, I mean, as you say, can give an impression of change, but it doesn't have to be too um, precise and it doesn't have to come down to named individuals. So I think that's quite right. And also, I think that's where the uh, EHCR's report into anti-Semitism is so, I mean, in, in its own right, it's a really important thing and absolutely right that the Labour Party tackles it. And, you know, speaking from the outside, really welcome that the Labour mm. Party has a leader who wants to tackle those problems. I guess that just from a purely political perspective makes life for Keir Starmer easier as well, because it gives him a very obvious, clear issue to, di to distinguish himself from his predecessors, because the HRCR's report has the force of law behind it. It actually makes some of the internal battles easier, because in the end, the Labour Party has to change, otherwise they get you know, have the law thrown at them. Um, and it's also an issue on which, you know, the public is overwhelmingly opposed to anti-Semitism. So it's also an you, issue where he's, he's, you know, he's on the public side. Yes, absolutely. And and one of the things that hasn't been noticed, actually, uh, recently is the EHRC have actually accepted Labour's proposals for mm. implementing their suggestions, which uh, is a very positive thing for, for the Labour Party. And of course, uh, one could also say from the point of view of the, the left that uh, this really is not the issue that they want to fight on but it is the issue that um, many of them seem to have chosen to fight on over the last few weeks yeah let's come back to that in a moment because that comes on to the second lesson for what part oppositions need to do before we do we should give a nod to my own party the liberal democrats and i guess for us this question of fresh faces generational change is a little bit trickier uh, because ed davy our new leader was a minister in coalition and the party ever since 2015 and indeed, even during the 2015 election, has had a been torn between thinking we should defend the record of coalition and we should uh, half apologise and you know maybe talk up some good points, but also concede that things went went wrong and try to move on. And you know the the, the old mantra of people like Alastair Campbell was very much, you know, you've just got to move on in such situations. Well, I think a lot of Lib Dems have been more attached to the idea of defending a lot of what happened in coalition especially things like legalization of same-sex marriage so if you were if you were giving Ed Davey advice on how to apply that fresh faces lesson what would you say the sort of party's take should be on should we basically just try to move on from coalition not talk about it try and I guess apologize and move on quickly where it where it comes up or should we still be trying to defend what happened I mean I think from the point of view of most voters, it is such a long time ago now. Mm. Um, you know, the decision to go in is 10 years ago and, uh, you know, the, the leaving of the coalition was five years ago. I really think that it's something that, you know, Lib Dems perhaps agonise more over than they need to. I mean, clearly there will be attacks, particularly from the Labour Party, uh, about the Lib Dems uh, recording coalition but I think as we move towards you know 2024 uh, and possibly of course even earlier given the changes to legislation on the fixed term parliaments act 
Uh, I just can't see most voters, um, even the sort of target voters for the Lib Dems, worrying too much about it. Um, I think the answer to it is, well, you know, that was then, this is now, we made some mistakes, we did some good things. It's always a kind of balance mm. uh, when you go into government, you can't please everybody. Uh, we're proud of some of the things we did, and, you know, perhaps we regret some of the things that um, we, we did as well. But, uh, you know, we're facing the future. I think that's the way I'd play it. Yeah, I think when there are, say, Labour attacks over austerity, I mean, I still have a strong instinct to want to respond with pointing out how, say, Alistair Darling was promising bigger cuts than Margaret Thatcher uh, in public spending ahead of the 2010 election. But that does feel like quite an antiquated point uh, to be making. And 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 I guess the, the key, th- I mean, Joe Swinson tried the sort of, uh, you know, uh, apologise, acknowledge successes, move on approach, and it didn't really work in 2019 in the general election. But I think it's the sort of approach which, it's not the approach in itself that succeeds or fails. It's if you were popular, saying, well, it's a mixed record, let's move on, people will go with. If you're not popular, people won't respond well to that point. And therefore, in a sense, I think the challenge is not so much for Ed and and his colleagues to fine tune that particular message, but it's rather to find ways to be more in the public eye and more popular because then there'll be the leeway. Yeah, I, I think you make a really good point there. I mean, I think people will in some ways take the same message from a different messenger uh, and respond to it differently. Quite right. Um, okay, number two, unity and the discipline was your second lesson. And on the reflection, I'm slightly surprised actually that this was one of the lessons that you put in for successful opposition parties because I guess a little bit of a cliche often is to say that oh, an opposition party leader needs to find you know a clause for moment some high profile symbolic controversial moment about demonstrating their fresh face and then moving on from the past but nonetheless your your reading of the evidence over over the years over the decades maybe over the centuries not quite sure how far back some of your research goes um is that unity and discipline is really important and i guess in that sense it's probably a slightly mixed picture for labor this year yes i mean i think it's important that Clearly, the the new leader uh, and the new leadership more generally uh, is seen to uh, be in control of the party. Now, Mm. that, of course, slightly depends on if they are to have a row when that row occurs. So if it occurs early on uh, in the lifetime of the parliament and it allows the leader and those around him to establish control, then that's no bad thing. I mean, I would caution against, and I think Keir Starmer anyway uh, is of uh, this mind that there's no point confecting a row, um, trying to actually have one in order to establish one's credentials as a leader. But in some ways, he's been forced into having one uh, by the way that Jeremy Corbyn reacted to the HRC report. Uh, And you'd have to say, actually, that although he's had problems with grassroots members, and, you know, there have been a few MPs who tried to kind of lead that, you know, grassroots revolt against Jeremy Corbyn's suspension. Actually, uh, I I don't think uh, there is very much enthusiasm in the PLP, and indeed, large sections of the membership to, you know, defend um, Jeremy, uh, there hasn't been perhaps as much fallout over the last few weeks as I thought there was going mm. to be uh, at one stage. So, uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, there is there is always an opportunity uh, in an argument as long as the leader can win it. Um, and I think by and large, 
Keir Starmer is winning that argument, although, you know, it will rumble on for a little bit longer because people are so attached um, at the grassroots, at least some people, um, to Jeremy Corbyn and the memory of Jeremy Corbyn. He has still got a problem there. I mean, you know, it, it might not be possible to keep Jeremy Corbyn out of the Labour Party or the PLP anyway, I should say, um, forever. Uh, he may well have to be, as it were, welcomed back in, but it will depend on Jeremy Corbyn, I think, apologising for what he's done. And it it strikes me, in, I guess, as long as Starmer doesn't end up losing a particular procedural battle, in a way, all of the, those arguments sort of help, because as one of his key messages is that he's not Jeremy Corbyn, having to fight some internal battles that re-remind people of Corbyn is not unhelpful. I think if he was having to fight battles that re-reminded the public about, say, a policy failure of a previous Labour government, I can see how that could be damaging. Mm. But but it, it strikes me on balance, what's happening is is likely to just continue to, to aid Keir Starmer. I, I think on the Lib Dem side, I guess the brutal reality is that most of the public don't pay enough attention to the Lib Dems for there to be any, <laughs> for there to be the level of attention to what's going on for people to spot how united or not we are. Yeah. But but I think at a sort of the basic functional level, you know, things like um, the sometimes classic tensions between rival party leadership candidates and so on, all of that seems to be going pretty well that, you know, Ed Davey and Leila Moran get on very well. I would say probably... They have a better working relationship than, say, Nick Clegg and Chris Hume did in the aftermath of the Clegg-Hume mm -hmm. leadership contest. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in as much as there is anything that the public notice about the degree of unity in the Lib Dems, it seems this is one that things are ticking along pretty well on. Yeah. And I mean, that actually makes me think of the effect of the pandemic on all this, because, of mm. course, what we haven't had is you know, party conferences mm. and bust ups there. I'm not saying <clears> excuse me, <laughs> Liberal Democrat online conference. <laughs> yeah. Other yeah, parties we, have not been able to be as organised as us. I no, think you'll find that's true. That's true. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, we haven't had footage of people yeah. having stand up rows yeah, at, uh, at conference. Uh, and I think that to some extent has, has helped the leaderships of all the parties, actually, you know, the, the, there might've been more problems. Um, and certainly one can imagine, um, given some of the arguments over the strategy pursued uh, by the Lib Dems, um, you know, at the election, uh, all of a row uh, having occurred about that, but, but it hasn't actually. I mean, I think the publication of that actually very kind of honest report um, mm. by the Lib Dems helps in that respect. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there, there may be a few policy disagreements there. There always are with the Lib Dems. But as you say, at the moment, I don't think, you know, the public is paying enough attention to uh, to those. Um, I mean, I guess also that's that's true for Labour. I mean, mm. there will be inevitably um, some friction if and when Keir Starmer begins to move away from, you know, the Corbyn agenda. Mm. Yeah, and certainly... I think had there been physical autumn conferences, uh, you know, just the ability of journalists to pick up gossip in the bar, et cetera, just that that basic flow of information that can be turned into splits, et cetera, stories, I think mm. is missing. It reminds me thinking about this. I've not never actually mentioned it to him, but I, I'm, I'm always quite impressed by where Stephen Bush of the New Statesman situates himself in the bar at Liberal Democrat conference. It's as if, it's as if he studied years of the flow of people through 
the physical space of a conference bar to work out where is the best place to be located. To, but certainly every time I've seen him there, he seems to be in the perfect location. So I, know, I don't know if that's instinct talents, yeah. or careful design. I should ask him next time, next time <laughs> I see him in a conference bar. But um, I mean, certainly at our autumn conference, there was obviously quite a high profile sort of keynote debate, as it were, on the party's European policies and certainly mm. very passionately held views on both sides and in the end the vote was you know a very very clear one for the policy that we went for and also I think it's the sorts of differences that were expressed in that debate over basically at what point should we be campaigning for Britain to rejoin the EU are the sorts of differences that will fade rather than get greater over time because in the sense everyone agrees on where we should be in the long term the disagreement is over where you know the short-term tactics and so on and so the as time goes by, you get closer and closer to the long term anyway. So I mm. think, fingers mm. crossed, you know, the, the Lib Dem ship will be a relatively happy one. Yeah, that's interesting. Time. I mean, it's of course the European um, dimension is 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 more problematic in some ways for Labour and you know their decision on mm. know, what to do about a deal or no deal, etc. May well reverberate for a few years because, of course, you know if, if Brexit is seen to be a disaster you know as it, as it could be yeah. um, by by more people over time then you know labor either backing or not backing a deal or um, you know it starts on on no deal you know maybe dug up by people and, and used as a stick to beat Keir Starmer either way. Yeah and I think labor has probably the harder task at the next general election than the Lib Dems in one key respect which is although there's an awful lot of I mean, it's almost metropolitan sneering about how the red wall seats are completely different from, you know, southern England and people in the red wall seats are meant to not care about the environment or, you know, so, you know, sort of social rights issues and so on. Nonetheless, I think it is true. I think it is objectively true that there is a much bigger demographic and attitudinal variation between the sorts of seats Labour needs to win to do really well at the next general election and the sorts of seats the Lib Dems, you know, we need to win to yeah. do well at the next general election. That for the Lib Dems, we've got a more homogenous target of who we need to aim for. Labour is quite torn uh, between different groups of people and quite a lot of internal disagreements between those groups of people, which if you're doing really well becomes a huge strength because of the breadth of your appeal. But if you're struggling, I suspect there, there could be quite a lot of internal debates in, in Labour to come over, uh, you know, which bit of the country are they supposedly neglecting to appeal to and they're going to fail to win seats? Yeah, I, I think you make a really good point there, especially about the Lib Dems. I mean, the, you know, the research that we did, as as you know, you know, points very clearly to the fact that actually the Lib Dems and Labour mm. aren't really uh, mm. in competition with each other in many places at all. And the, the seats that the Lib Dems, uh, you know, need to aim for are basically Tory Remainer mm. uh, seats for the most part. And that does give uh, the Lib Dems a very... Uh, focused target at which to aim um, but as you say um, for for Labour um, their electoral coalition is you know perforce far more heterogeneous mm. uh, but I do also think you do make a very good point there that if the party is riding high anyway uh, it will be possible to put these things together it always is after all you know Tony Blair's great genius was to mm. sort of knit together uh, a middle class and a working class uh, and, a, and a southern and a northern electoral coalition and, and that's uh, uh, that's much easier to do, obviously, when you're more generally popular and the government is mm. seen to be uh, in trouble. Yeah. And I'll include a link in the show notes to that report 
that you mentioned, Tim, because it's an excellent report and is really striking, for example, in terms of how few seats there are, which are Labour Lib Dem contests mm. at the moment, how much it is Labour versus Tories and Labour versus SNP and how much it is Lib Dems versus Tories and Lib Dems versus SNP. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the interesting thing is, of course, that although that is true in parliamentary uh, constituencies, it's not always so true at a hyper, uh, mm. local level. <laughs> but, Liberal um, Democrats in Sheffield and Manchester are probably poised to email and tweet at us to point that out. Yeah. yeah. As indeed and, and, may any Labour listeners from okay. either of those cities. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's so I mean, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Because, of course, you mm. want your, your activists at a local level who are going for council seats. Mm. And, of course, we have got these kind of mega... Mm. Uh, local elections due to take place in 2021. I noticed how you said due to take place. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say touch wood. Uh, but, um, you know, so so there yes, will be some fierce competition. Did you see what 2022 ends up oh, being? Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. Oh, crikey. Three years worth of elections on one day. That would be, oh. All your Christmases come at once, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, okay, so we've talked about unity and discipline. Um, visibility is the, was the third key factor um which is one i think it's fair to say the liberal democrats you know this is probably our biggest challenge uh, partly because with 11 mps 11 mps is the basic currency of media attention it's hard to get national media interest and coverage and that's where things like our grassroots campaigning is so important and where this year has been really difficult because of course with coronavirus lockdown that has hugely uh, held back rightly so obviously for health reasons but it's hugely held back to that sort of local activity um, I think for Labour it's been much more straightforward hasn't it because when you have big national issues like coronavirus the media very naturally turns to the leader of the opposition so Keir Starmer has been able to get quite a lot of media coverage and Labour quite a lot of profile without necessarily having to say or do that much although he has chosen his moment quite well on a couple of occasions hasn't he Yes, I mean, I think he has been um, playing a, a very cautious game. I mean, keeping, as it were, just ahead of the government, but not too far ahead. I mean, he's been, obviously, he was very concerned not to be, uh, you know, accused of mm. cancelling Christmas, although he did make an intervention there. He made an intervention a few weeks earlier on suggesting a kind of circuit breaker mm. uh, lockdown. So it's quite difficult, I think, for the Conservatives now to accuse him of being Captain Hindsight. Mm. Uh, which was one of the, the you know, the, the favourite uh, uh, um, you know, slurs thrown at him by Boris Johnson. That's not going to be so easy to do. And I think you're right. He's almost going to kind of got a guaranteed place as the leader of the opposition uh, when it comes to the kind of media's commitment to balance uh, on any kind of political aspect to the, uh, the, the coronavirus crisis. And that, that has been an advantage there. Um, I mean, presumably that, means that uh, some of the other um, people in the leadership, you know, those in the shadow cabinet will be beavering away on their particular portfolios, you know, getting into them so that when eventually, touch wood, we do get out of this crisis, you know, they'll be ready to go uh, with some, you know, more eye-catching kind of initiatives and uh, and policies. Yeah, I, I guess the person who's most surprised me with their pretty low media profile this year therefore has been Jess Phillips, that with her brief uh, around domestic violence, I mean, sadly, with coronavirus, that's been an even more you know, important um, issue. And she certainly had a reputation as being very much a media attention grabbing mm. MP. But she doesn't seem to manage to turn that into being a 
the sort of uh, front bench spokesperson who who grabs a lot of attention. No, I mean that's that's true. She has had a slightly lower profile profile than perhaps one would have imagined. That might not be so true as we go into the the new year, of course. Mm. And of course, she, like everybody else, is actually coping, you know, with the sort of domestic side mm. of uh, of the coronavirus crisis as well. Yeah, and, that's. Uh, I mean, that's a very good point. Is uh, politicians don't get much sympathy from the public, but we should remember that politicians are human beings too, and things like. <laughs> having to do your job while looking after young kids, worrying about elderly, you know, all of those sorts of problems that everyone else has faced, actually politicians face, you know, as well. And and, and therefore there may well be some politicians who we will see really step up their game next year. Yeah. Just because think... like everyone else, it then, you know, as normality returns, it's easier to do your job well. Yes, I think, I think that is the case, but certainly you're right that, uh... You know, and this, in some senses, is a perennial problem for the Lib Dems because they're not Her Majesty's official, you know, loyal opposition. Mm. They they just don't get turned to automatically mm. in the way that um, that Labour do. So, uh, in visibility terms, it, it is a real struggle for the Liberal Democrats. And this is where, in some ways, those local elections could make a big difference, mm. uh, because as we know, the Lib Dems, you know, traditionally are very good at those those kind of local elections. And you know, if they are able to kind of turn things around for them themselves uh, there make some gains or whatever that will get the media paying a little bit more attention to them and and put them on the public's radar perhaps more than they are at the moment and also i think the local elections provide a good focus for lib dems to get out campaigning so it's not just the results of the elections it's also the all the extra effort and local publicity seeking that flows in advance of them but as we speak it looks like fingers crossed there will be big sets of elections in may next year but I wonder how long there will be between tier four ending and those elections. Yes, happening. perhaps not very much time for campaigning yeah, which, uh, at all, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, long live social media campaigning, clearly. Um, <laughs> so the fourth of your five factors was efficiency and professionalism. And I think probably for both Labour and the Lib Dems, that's been quite a big tick this year of you know, big steps forward from how things were before. Um, and, you know, some of that some of that impact can be relatively indirect, but things like the amount the, pol- the journalists used to complain about never being able to hear back from the Labour Party press office must have coloured to an extent their coverage of the Labour Party, mm. uh, even if things like the editorial line, preferred editorial line of the newspaper owner might also have somewhat <laughs> of a factor. But, you know, things like that, that just basic level of competence is quite important, isn't it? Yes. I mean, you, you took the words right out of my mouth there. I mean, you know, there were persistent complaints, weren't there, over the the, the five years or the four years that Jeremy yeah. Corbyn was there that, um, you know, journalists just you know, could not get a response. Uh, and that seems to have completely disappeared now. He has a much more um, professional operation, Keir Starmer. Uh, there isn't anywhere near so much division between the leader of the opposition's office and, uh, you know, the, the HQ of the party. Um, you know, he seems to have... Um, you know, cleared out, as it were, mm-hmm. or they themselves have cleared themselves out um, of, of many of the Corbyn Easters from uh, Labour Party HQ. So uh, uh, he's appointed a new general secretary, who's very much his choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so for, from the point of view of the kind of the, the Labour machine, in all respects, really, we do have a, a much more efficient mm-hmm. and much more professional operation. Um, well, I mean, when it comes to the Lib Dems, you'd have to say, I don't think that was ever... Um, such a problem 
Mm, well, I'm not sure. Read the Thornhill report without telling any tales out of school. Read the Thornhill report. But <laughs> I think we have made huge improvements um, on that this year. And uh, you know, if you look at things like the senior team at HQ, there's been you know, very significant changes and also mm. very significant changes across a whole range of sort of volunteer party posts um, as well. But I guess you know, for quite a lot of people, quite understandably, the jury is a little bit still out because mm. a lot of those changes take time to work their way through. And, you know, things like hugely in increasing the focus that we give to grassroots campaign support hasn't really shown results this year because there haven't, you know, there weren't the May elections and people haven't been able to do campaigning and so on. So there's a bit of, you know, of 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 the real test coming coming next yeah. year. But I think I think the changes that we've we've been making so far this year are are pretty promising. Um and I yeah. think one of the things it reflects is that I think often the untold story about you know political party leaders is the extent to which they have a really professional operation behind them. And obviously that's partly down to them because you know leaders can have a big impact on, on what sort of operation they have behind them. But you know, whether you've got things like a really good press officer does make a huge difference to the amount of media coverage that a party leader gets. Um yeah. and, and I think one of the untold stories about Vince Cable's time as Lib Dem leader was, for example, just how there were almost no party staff for the <laughs> around for the first part of his leadership, because so many people were on a crude holiday and so on. It was I remember yeah. somebody commenting to me that Lib Dem HQ seemed like the Mary Celeste for the first few months of his leadership. Um, and yeah. so although, you know, you look at sort of political accounts of of the last parliament and about, you know, how sort of Vince Cable's leadership really blossomed towards the end of it. I think one of the factors that's often overlooked in that is simply that there was a degree of organisation there that simply wasn't there in the early days of his leadership. So yeah, hopefully I mean, all of that is... We also know, obviously, from from you know the the recent history of the Lib Dems. I mean, going back a few years, that, that money can be a problem as well for opposition mm. parties. You know, and that can make a difference to to capacity. Yeah. I mean, it it has you know both for the Conservatives and for the Labour Party in in recent years been a been a bit of a problem when they've been in opposition. Uh, and you know, certainly, I mean, I do, I'm not going to get you to go into the kind of ins and outs of Lib Dem finances, but over the years, they've occasionally been quite problematic. You know, mm. The party had to move yeah. to Cowie Street, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that can mean that you can't always get as many people as you want, or even mm. get the people that you need. Yeah, I'll be tempted to include a donate to the Lib Dems link in the show notes then after <laughs> that. <laughs> but on uh, on your final criteria, adaptability to circumstances, and we've touched on this a little bit already, obviously, in talking about coronavirus. Um, the thing that I really wonder, though, and I'm puzzled why there isn't more commentary about this, you know, in things like the likes of The Guardian, The New Statesman, etc., is it seems to me really unclear whether Keir Starmer has a step two in his plan. You know, step one in his plan, well, I guess step one was win the leadership. Step two was then very obviously be not Jeremy Corbyn. And I think he's done that. It's not clear that he's got another step coming. And, and I guess in that sense, the question is, a bit like the debates there, were and still are, I guess, over John Smith's time as Labour Party leader. You know, when John Smith became Labour leader after Neil Kinnock, his approach very much seemed to be, let's do everything as we did before, but with a different front man. And a different front man is enough to take what we did before into 
being a winning election proposition. So John Smith didn't do very much in terms of changing Labour policy or changing Labour organisation. It was, he's John Smith, he's not Neil Kinnock. And because of John Smith's you know, tragic uh, death from a heart attack before we got to fight a general election, we'll never know whether that was enough or not. Obviously, the Tony Blair diagnosis was that wasn't sufficient, which is why Tony Blair then made so many more changes to Labour before winning the 97 election. And with Keir Starmer, it feels like he's, I don't know, is he wanting to be a John Smith type character that we've pretty much seen all that he's going to change this year? Or is there more coming? Well, I mean, I think if he does have a step two or three, whichever it is, I mean, it has to be. And in some ways, this is taking a leaf out of um, John Smith's book, um, undermining the competence uh, of the government or undermining its competence rating. Uh, that's something that John Smith was very, very effective at doing. I mean, to some extent, he had an easy target because, of yeah, course, he I mean, well, with the ERM, so, yes, yeah, absolutely. When when Britain crashed out of the RM, but the Tory Party poll ratings took quite a hammering very quickly, and I'm and certainly, I think you know, John Smith handled himself very well. Was very impressive in Parliament, but it was the issue that really hammered. You know, it was the public very clearly blamed the government for what mm-hmm. happened in a way that the public hasn't blamed Boris Johnson for coronavirus. You know, if you think, listen to things like the uh, Times Redbox regular focus groups or Deborah Mattinson when she talks about the focus group she's running, time and again, the story from swing voters is that they feel that Boris Johnson is sort of struggling, trying to do his best. And the more critical ones also think his best isn't nearly good enough. Not surprisingly, that's the view I would agree with. But there is a sense of, you know, of of sort of sympathy or a little bit of reservoir of goodwill, which he's obviously been using up quite a lot through the year. But with the ERM, the exchange rate mechanism debacle in autumn 1992, there was no sense of, oh, the poor Chancellor Norman Lamont is really trying his best, was it? You know, it was... <laughs> These these people are massively to blame. They've now, you know, had a huge damaging policy U-turn forced on them. So in that sense, is is copying John Smith really enough? Because circumstances helped John Smith in a way that they haven't played out in a similar way for Keir Well, I mean, I I think you're right, obviously, to say that, you know, the ejection from the ERM was very much seen as the government's fault rather than, you know, necessarily kind of bolt from the blue um, natural causes, Mm. as it were. But... I mean, there is a difference there, isn't there, in the sense that, as you say, a lot of what Deborah Mattinson and other qualitative researchers are showing, and indeed the evidence of quantitative research, suggests that um, you know people are beginning to doubt this government, but they're not yet um, prepared necessarily to kind of move away from it and move to Labour. One of the things that John Smith was able to do was to get them to move, as it were, directly. Uh, from the Conservatives to Labour. Not mm. only did the Conservatives go down, I mean, you're the, the kind of historic polling yeah. uh, guru here, Mark, but actually, um, you know, Labour's rating went up mm. um, quite considerably. Uh, and I think if Keir Starmer, you know, continues to kind of pound away at the government's uh, competence ratings, that that could happen. I mean, one of the um, things that Will Jennings and, and Jane Green show in their research, they've got a, a really good book on this, is that actually... Um, government's competence in in particular areas can begin to kind of bleed over into a general impression of incompetence, uh, and, and that I think could happen. I think particularly the you know what went on just before Christmas, um, you know, with people being given five days, then that suddenly reduced. Um, mm. You know, some uh, chaos seen on the transport network. Mm. 
Um, you know, we have disruption, whatever happens over Brexit. We, you know, we have lorries parked up, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I think that might begin to tell. And particularly when Johnson himself is not seen as a particularly, you know, efficient or competent politician. So I, I do actually think, you know, you, you do make a good point there that it's not enough simply to hammer uh, the government. But actually, that is pretty important. Yeah. And, and, you know, four years out from a general election, or it might come quicker than that. Um, I think Keir Starmer is, uh, you know, quite concerned to keep his powder dry mm. in terms of policy development. Partly because nobody's going to be paying much attention anyway to to policy in other areas. Um, although he did make a speech just before Christmas about about devolution, um, and, and 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 in some ways, you know, focusing on you know destroying the government uh, before, as it were, trying to kind of invade its territory isn't isn't a bad uh, strategy. Yeah, I, I suspect if we do a repeat of this in a year's time, that's probably very much a question that we will come back to as to whether there, you know, whether it's turned out that there is something beyond simply knocking the government or indeed whether it's, you know, looking like there needs to be anything beyond simply knocking the government. Because obviously the old political cliche is that you know, governments lose elections. It's not the opposition's win elections. Um, but I do wonder in particularly the multi-party system that we have, where if you don't like the Tories, there are quite a lot of other parties you can choose from, whether actually it's enough to simply be the not to the Tories, you know, not to the Tories, whether you actually need to have something that is more positive. Now, it might be that actually that just becomes a matter of, you know, sort of geographic tactics and organisation that even if you don't have a particularly powerful pro-Labour message, just being not the Tories in the seats where you're closest to beating the Tories is enough because you can you can win people over on a tactical message and so on. And obviously there'll be an extent to which that, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the Lib Dems, we will try something very similar of sort of coalescing anti-Tory voters behind the Lib Dem candidate in various, uh, you know, in various seats. Um, so I guess just finally to sort of wrap up those five lessons, I think thinking about what we've just said about how both Labour and the Lib Dems are doing on each of the five of them, what would be your bit of advice to uh, each of the parties? uh in terms of what what each of us needs to get right next year Ooh, um i mean i think for for keir starmer clearly he's got to uh resolve the jeremy corbyn issue and he's got to resolve that uh, in his favor however that goes and that means either a kind of you know apology groveling or otherwise mm. from jeremy corbyn uh, before he's let back into the plp or probably ideally actually keeping jeremy corbyn out of the plp uh, altogether that's the first thing he, he has to do second thing is you know carry on um, uh, you know chipping away at the government's uh, competence rating as, as we've talked about uh, and hopefully broadening out from its um, you know, supposed incompetence over coronavirus to you know it's more more general uh, competence that's the other thing and I guess you know, to to begin to bring some more of his colleagues into the to the limelight, and hopefully, you know, some, some more policies uh, as well. But then, as I say, you don't want to make policies too early because otherwise, the government will simply steal them or or <laughs> or just spend their time um, rubbishing them. And for the for the Lib Dems, 
I mean, it is all about visibility, but that's very, very difficult, which is why I think, you know, we have spoken about it, concentrating on doing as well as they possibly can at these local elections in order to give themselves in media terms, the kind of legitimacy and, and, and credibility and visibility that you, you, you know, that 11 MPs can't get you is, is very, very important. So, you know, uh, it won't disturb you to say that I think, you know, as much emphasis as possible on, on campaigning virtual or otherwise in order to do well at those elections is going to be crucial especially as they are in a way not just local elections we've got in effect a general election in scotland and general election in wales given the scottish parliament and the world senate uh, are also up for election so it is a massive set of elections absolutely a lot of political power you know there's a lot of political power at stake and both although it's i think it's often forgotten the snp you know, actually lost their majority at the last <laughs> Scottish elections. You know, the Lib Dems are in coalition government in Wales. That it's not just that in theory a lot of political power is at stake in both of those bodies, but it's also, uh, you know, very credible that with good election results there will be real Lib Dem influence on what what happens. Um, so on that uh, note of exhaustion to Lib Dem listeners to go out and campaign as soon as we safely can, one final question for you, Tim. What new books or research from you have we got to look forward to in 2021? Well, uh, there will be a co-authored uh, book, which will be the Nuffield uh, study of the general election. This is the one that comes out, you know, a year or two after. Ah, you are the election. new Phil Cowley, is that uh, right? Then? I wouldn't, I wouldn't possibly <laughs> describe myself as the new Phil Cowley. He is unique, and no one could replace him. But it's a team, actually. It's, mm. uh, it's uh, me, Rob Ford from Manchester University, Will Jennings from mm. Southampton, and Paula Surridge uh, from Bristol. Uh, we've completed, I think, uh, all the interviews for that. And, and as you know, it's a, a mix of kind of qualitative research and quantitative research, really kind of going into the uh, the weeds of the election and trying to come up with a kind of overall narrative of the election, but also a kind of analytical narrative and an explanation of what went on uh, and, and what explains that, um, you know, very big Tory majority. So um, that's coming together now, We're beginning to sort of uh, really get into the chapters uh, hopefully that will be out uh, in the middle of, of next year um, certainly it will be out ready for conference and hopefully it will Excellent. be a real conference it'll be on the conference book stands uh, by then I've got a few other kind of comparative projects on on the boil but I'll be starting a, a kind of two-year project looking at what on earth has happened to the Conservative Party over the last five years fascinating that will be fascinating um especially i think given your expertise in looking at political party membership just that question about what's really happened at the grassroots because i do wonder whether the story with the tories is a bit like the story with labor as in the popular account has been rather overdone so the popular account of labor was all about a corbynite takeover of the party and how lots of changes were being made to lock in Corbynite influence, you know, beyond Jeremy Corbyn, etc. And an awful lot of that collapsed, not quite like a house of cards, but yeah, <laughs> you know, the Corbynite influence of the Labour Party clearly massively tailed mm. away the moment Corbyn left the Labour Party mm. leadership. And so I do wonder, it'd be really fascinating to see what you find about how much the Tory grassroots has really changed versus how much what we've seen about the Tory party is really about whoever happens to have been leader at the time. So good, excellent, lots of stuff to look forward to there. Uh, I don't know, is, is the Nuffield book available for pre-order yet? 
Oh, I don't think we've quite got that far. Yeah. I'm not if, sure we've even decided I will check. If it yet. is, I will put a link in the show notes so that people can get their orders in early. Because <laughs> I know that's one of the things that does seem to make quite a big difference for books these days, isn't it? It's pre-ordering ahead of publication. Oh, well, we'll have to help. come back on the show. Perhaps all four of us can gang up on yeah, you. Well, I think and, three and out that... of the four of you have been guests on here. But Will Jennings, I don't think I've had on the show before. Oh, you should definitely get you yeah. should definitely get Will. He's a, a fascinating character. He's an absolute mine of information. And he's also really, really interesting about what happens on election night uh, mm. talk about us politics because he was doing the uh the the kind of sky um you know behind the scenes yeah. stuff for the the presidential election that's a really good idea i did speak to will recently actually as part of the research for uh my book that's safely out, out out the year after next about opinion polling but that's a yeah. good idea i think i may see if he can come on the show to further plug your excellent new forthcoming book. But thank you very much for coming on the show again, Tim. Uh, listeners can find Tim on Twitter at Prof Tim Bale, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you until next time. Mm-hmm.